to Matthew chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 18 to 21. We're going to read that passage for us. Then we want to look this morning at the subject of entering the womb, the actual incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, uh, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. John tells us in his gospel, that opening prologue that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Uh, the word dwelt is literally tabernacled. He pitched his tent along with ours. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a picture and an image of the fact that we are temples of God. We are intended to be tents of God in which He dwells. Jesus pitched His tent among us. And John says, we beheld, we saw His glory, glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, in the last two messages uh, leading up to uh, Christmas, we have looked at, first of all, the fact that Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, is the eternal Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He has always existed with the Father and with the Spirit face to face uh, in eternity past, long, long before, uh, uh, eternally before the world and the universe was made. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ existed as the only begotten of the Father. And uh, then we looked last week at what it took for Him to truly come to earth and live as a man, as a human being. And that while He did not give up His attributes of deity, He did lay them aside. He put them on deposit in heaven and came here not utilizing His attributes of deity, but living as a human being, uh, one who is filled by the Holy Spirit, so that he might be a genuine example for us. Today, we want to look at uh, what did it mean, having made that decision, and as Paul puts it in Galatians, in the fullness of time, which is another way of saying at precisely the right moment that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, literally stepped out of heaven 
and into the womb of Mary and allowed himself to be formed as a developing embryo in the body of Mary and to be born as a baby and to grow up quite naturally as a human being that he might fully uh, take on our flesh and experience our experiences and walk in our shoes and uh, be all the things that, that we go through. Um, Jesus, uh, you know, a lot of times we uh, romanticize his birth and uh, we forget some of the nitty-gritty realities that he had to have his diaper changed, that he had to nurse like any other normal child of that period, that, that he uh, had to grow up, that um, he cried when he was wet and cried when he was hungry. The one hymn that always gets me a little bit uh, when we sing it is, No Crying He Made. Uh, maybe not at that moment, but uh, I've never met the baby that didn't cry. And that's the only way they have of saying, I need something. <laughs> and so, um, even if what they're crying about is not fussing and being ornery, that comes along a little while later, but uh, they still cry because they have needs. So we tend to romanticize all of that away and kind of imagine that Jesus did not go through those stages. But the Scripture says that he, he learned obedience through the things He suffered. And He grew up and developed as a normal child. And, uh, you know, a normal baby, a normal child, a normal teenager, a normal adult, taking on family responsibility, being a carpenter, um, working in his father's shop, and eventually, because we don't hear any more about Joseph after a season, uh, eventually taking over that shop, at least for a period of time. And so, Jesus came in the fullness of time, stepping out of heaven into the womb of Mary to take on the human experience. The human flesh and the human experience. The first point that I have highlighted for us here is the potential scandal and the angel visit. Uh, during the betrothal period, Mary was found to be pregnant. In our culture today, this is so commonplace that it has lost any kind of uh, social stigma. The vast majority of people live together before they marry. They even have two or three children. And I used to uh, encounter people that have been living together a few months and a pregnancy occurred and they thought, well, we should get married. But now, um, people live together 10, 15 years, 20 years, have several children before they decide, well, it's time to tie the knot. By the way, my opinion of that is, uh, it's past time, let's get on with it. But anyway, um, 
we live in a culture where this is not, uh, this has no stigma. It's completely lost that impact. But let me tell you something. First century Middle East. For that matter, 21st century Middle East. If you're betrothed to be married through a family contract and arrangement, and you're found to be pregnant, life gets really rough very fast. First of all, if the assumption is that the engaged husband or the engaged uh, groom is the father, then both are ostracized from the community. But if he is not, then the woman is essentially ostracized and thought to be a worthless scum or trash and rejected. She will never be able to be married. She will never marry. She will be treated as uh, filthy and unworthy and no man will look twice at her. She will not be cared for by her family. She will be totally rejected by the society. And her only option in most cases is to turn to prostitution. Because in essence, she's already demonstrated that that's who she is. And so that's what happens. And so this situation for Mary and Joseph was horrible. And we go back a step to Luke's Gospel before she's discovered to be pregnant. In fact, before she is pregnant. And the angel visits Mary and he says to her, Hail, favored one. God has chosen you. You're going to conceive and bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus. And... He is going to be the Redeemer of your people, of His people. And this will be a special blessing. God has chosen you for this privileged responsibility. And Mary says something absolutely remarkable given the cultural context. She says, Lord, let it be even as you have said unto your servant. I am willing to be the mother of my Lord. I'm willing. That is an amazing step of faith to trust God in such a a remarkable way to say, I will accept this divine will and mandate for my life, whatever it means. Uh, You know, you talk about a step of faith not having any idea where it's going. That was tremendous. And it tells us something about who Mary is. If I have time toward the end of the message, I'm going to talk about the Catholic perspective because there's some interesting theology surrounding it. But I want to say at this point, 
that we as uh, evangelicals, as Christ followers, as Protestants, we have a tendency to negate the true worth and value of Mary. We tend to ignore her uh, and not give her the respect that is due. God chose her to be the loving, caring, nursing, tender mother of our Lord. And He chose her because there was something very special about her that she was willing to trust Him at all costs and faithfully submit herself to God's will for her life. That is a tremendous, tremendous woman of faith. And she was a young woman. She was probably mid to late teens. So she took a huge step of faith. Well, time goes along, and as is inevitable, she begins to show. And as the scripture puts it, it was discovered that she was with child, and Joseph hears of it. Don't you know that his initial response was heartbreak? Joseph is betrothed to this woman. He has been preparing for her. He has been planning for her. If he has been like any other Jewish groomsman to be, he has been building uh, a place onto his father's house. He has been uh, getting ready to receive her into the family. They've been talking about the wedding. Uh, he's been... Uh, putting up with the um, uh, typical jokes and jibes by the guys at work and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, if you've ever been on a construction crew, that can, can go a lot of directions. But uh, Joseph has been going to work and dealing with all of that, all in good-natured fun. And his heart's desire is looking forward to the wedding day. And Mary is discovered to be pregnant. And Joseph knows he is not the father. Now what? The scripture says that Joseph was of such a nature that he wanted to put her away privately. He had some options. He could have dragged her into the town square and, and had the people stone her. Or he could have embarrassed her hugely in front of everyone and ostracized her uh, and, and just um, made a mockery of her. His heartbreak could have taken many forms and he would have been justified in their culture and under their laws, and doing many different things other than quietly among the families dissolving 
the betrothal, which amounted to a divorce. Because once the betrothal had occurred, the covenant had been set for marriage, and, and to break it was considered divorce. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is out of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sin." Now we see what kind of man Joseph was. We see the angel coming to him and explaining things to him. Joseph, don't be afraid to marry her. Don't be afraid to uh, take her to be your wife because no man has had intercourse with her. That which is in her is from the Holy Spirit. And I want you to marry her and make her your wife. And when your son is born, when the son is born, I want you to call him Yeshua, which means Savior, because he is going to save his people from their sin. And Joseph wakes up from this dream and says, Okay, what do you think that implied? to the unawares of public around him. If he was willing to marry her, it implied that he was the father. And if he was willing to take her to be his wife, it was proof that he believed the angel, that Mary had been faithful and that she was still a virgin. And that he was receiving a woman uh, to be his wife who was morally pure. And he was willing to do that. And all the things that happened along the way uh, as they ultimately went to Bethlehem to register and then fled to Egypt and then came back to Nazareth. And all the ways that Joseph was always willing to pay immediate attention and obedience to the direction of the angelic voices that were guiding him and, and leading him in the protection and care of this child that was not his. And yet, he had been divinely appointed to care as a father for this baby, this child to come. Friends, God made amazing and special choices in Mary and Joseph. A, a young couple whose hearts were so devoted to Him that He could trust them with this most sacred gift and that He could count on them to obey Him and listen to Him and follow Him. And that they would despise the shaming and, and ignore the ridicule and the murmuring and the rumors and the gossip. And that they would live unto God 
as he had called them to be. We need to take time this time of year to recognize these two special people in biblical history and, and just marvel at their great faith and their humility and their willingness to be obedient to the Lord. So who is this Jesus? And what role does he fill in redemption? Well, first of all, he is the one man who will restore righteousness to the human race to all who believe. If if we follow Paul's uh, chronological theology in the book of Romans, we get to chapter 5, and he begins to unfold for us God's uh, plan of dealing with the sin nature and ultimately of uh, restoring us to uh, life and, and fellowship with Him. And he says that through one man, sin entered the world and death as a consequence of that sin. And so death has passed upon all people because everyone has sinned. That Adam was a significant first man from whom the whole race would emanate. As God took stuff from him to fashion Eve, recall that God made Adam from the dust of the ground (coughs) and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and he became a living soul. But that God took stuff from him to fashion Eve. In other words, she was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, as he recognized, because she was taken out of him, as God caused his sleep to fall upon him, so that she shared his human nature. She was female. He was male. Some people have tongue-in-cheek said, and not so far from the truth, that when he woke up and saw her, he said, Wow, uh, this is amazing. She came from me. But at any rate, um, they're both human. God made one person, one man, And from him, with the creation of Eve, out of his essence, the potential to have children and to pass on to the race all the characteristics of humanity. And Adam sadly failed the one test of obedience and plunged the race into sinfulness so that every single person who has been born since is born with a sin nature. Friends, sometimes people uh, get get some strange ideas uh, from popular, uh, let me call it popular theology. Uh, And part of the idea is that, uh, you know, uh, a man and a woman come together and and create a, a baby, a developing embryo, and somewhere along the line, God drops into them a soul. You know, they, they, 
they get their spiritual nature or their soulish nature uh, after a certain a period of time of gestation. And so uh, there's some sort of soul bank up there in heaven and God picks one and drops it into the womb and, and then that, that embryo turns into a person. And there's been a lot of debate in the courts over the abortion issue as to when does a developing embryo become human. I have news for you. God, there's no soul bank anywhere. God does not do something special to the embryo to make it human. For one thing, God cannot be and is not responsible for making something sinful. And every child that is born is born in sin and born with a sin nature. And God did not put it there. So where did it come from? It came from its parents. And it was human from the moment that the sperm penetrated the egg and that zygote began to form. It was human. It is a living person from the instant of conception and continues to be living. And so there is no time when you can bring that developing life to an end and assume that you have not destroyed a human being. That's very important for us to grasp. And because of that, because we pass on our sin nature, every single person from Adam and Eve downward have been born in sin. Every single one. And furthermore, we're not only born with the general human problem of sin, we're born with the particular sin natures of our contributing parents. Let me ask you a question here, you parents. When do your children absolutely embarrass you and mortify you the most? When they act just like you. When out of their little mouths or their little eyes or their little behaviors or their teenage behaviors or whatever comes some awful thing that is like looking in a mirror and you see yourself and you go, Oh Lord, I recognize that. I know just where that came from. And guess what, ladies? It didn't all come from the guys. My kids have an equal participation in both of our failings. Keep waiting for some of the strengths to show up. <laughs> now, shouldn't say that. John might listen to this online or Stephen. But it's rather amazing. And so, sin is passed on from generation to generation through regeneration, through progeneration. So, Jesus is the second man sent by heaven, crafted by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, 
so that he could restore righteousness to a lost race. Jesus makes it possible for us to be born again. He makes it possible for us to get a do-over. He is the one who introduces righteousness. If through one man came sin, so also through one man came the payment for sin and righteousness. We can be restored through Jesus Christ. He is the second man. And while the first Adam failed the test, the last Adam passed the test. Why this first and last business? Well, the first man, the, the first man, the first Adam, was created by God, and there was a simple test of obedience. And that first man faced that test, and he failed. Along comes the second man, and he also face, faces the test. Not just once, but again, and again, and again, throughout his life. If you compare the testings in the wilderness with the testing at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you find that they're parallel. What did Eve say? She saw that the tree was good for food, and it was beautiful to behold, and it was desirable to make one wise. And what did Satan tempt Jesus with in the wilderness? Turn the stones to bread that's good for food. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, become a, a great, no pun intended, splash in humanity. Uh, win the day. Become the great conqueror. Um, bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The boastful pride of life. Those same three things that faced Adam and Eve at the tree in the garden are the same three things that faced Jesus in the wilderness. But they faced Him over and over and over again. And time and again, He was confronted with the opportunity to fulfill His own desire instead of the Father's. But every time, Jesus pressed the test to the limit and won the battle. So that when He came to the end of the journey in the Garden of Gethsemane and committed Himself to the cross, He arrived the sinless Lamb of God. And because He had passed the test, He was the last Adam. There doesn't need to be another. He's the one who won the day. And because of that, He made it possible for us as the firstborn from the dead in resurrection, He made it possible for us to also be reborn by the power of the Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first man, Adam, was <coughs> born uh, the natural man. The second man became a life-giving spirit. And so he gave us the potential of being 
reborn. There is a way. Can I do number three in five minutes? I don't know. We'll try. So how does Jesus become the second man without a sin nature? Here is where evangelical theologians will want to walk out on me. But maybe my congregation will hang in there with me. And I'm going to uh, give you the disclaimer that this is my persuasion, but you are free to disagree with me. Jesus was born with a sinless nature without sin because as the second man from heaven, he was created by God exactly in the pattern of the first man and planted in the womb of Mary. In other words, Mary did not contribute any more to his humanity than did Joseph. In essence, she was a surrogate mom. And planted in her womb, the scripture says twice, that which is in you, or that which is in her, is out of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he came from heaven as the second man. And that he was in Mary's womb out of or a product of the Holy Spirit. Not just part of him, but all of him. And this is where the Catholics actually have impeccable logic. But they have a wrong premise. And that's why it goes off the wire. Um, do, you know how, do you know how you can have a logical fallacy? You can have something that is logically true, but the answer is actually wrong. For example, if I say to you, I've been watching these uh, commercials lately for the Blue Man Group. So if I say to you, all men are the same color. That man is blue. Therefore, all men are blue. Is that logically true? Ah, think about it. All men are the same color. That man is blue. Therefore, all men are blue. Is that logically true? It is. It is logically true. The premise is wrong. All men are not the same color. That's the problem. And that guy's got blue paint. That's another problem. But anyway. But so, so you can have a logically true conclusion that is not true. It's logically accurate. But it's based on a wrong assumption. The assumption that the Roman Catholic Church makes is that men and women pass on the sin nature. Therefore, in order for Jesus to be born sinless, Mary could not have had a sin nature. 
And so they invented the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. That somehow, and it gets real muddy here because nobody can explain this, but somehow a generation prior, Mary's mother was born without sin through the Immaculate Conception so that Mary could become the mother of God and not contaminate him with sin. Logically perfect. Wrong premise. The assumption is that Mary contributed his human side and God contributed his divine side. But that does not make Jesus fully God and fully man. It makes him half man and half God. In other words, for Jesus to be a whole man without sin... God had to plant within Mary's womb a second man with 46 chromosomes and all of the equipment required to be a total human being just like Adam. But he had to be born without a sin nature so that he could have the same starting point that Adam had who started without a sin nature. And therefore, he could face the temptations the same way Adam faced the temptations. Very real temptations, but no inner predilection toward sin. And so, like Adam, he faced the temptations as the second man, and he prevailed, and he made it possible, therefore, for us who are born in sin, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be restored, and to be filled with the Spirit once again, so that we might be reborn in a new race of people related to Jesus, the last Adam, the second man. Now, you don't have to agree with that. It's certainly not going to make any difference in your salvation, but it, it will make a difference in how you think about Jesus, I believe. And besides that, my logic is true without any false premises. I'm teasing you. <laughs> but I encourage you to study the Scriptures and see what it says. Our Lord Jesus took on human flesh, a body made in heaven, descended and placed within the womb of Mary, born an infant, and grew up and was tested in every way like we are, yet without sin. This has been Christmas morning dwelling on that temptation and our encouragement. But the Scripture says, therefore, we can boldly approach the throne because we do not have one who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has faced every temptation that we face and won 
and he can enable us to win. Thank you, Father, for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.